Well, thank you, Clay. Good to see a number of faces, new faces, uh, familiar faces coming back. Uh, all right, little survey. Did you enjoy break? Yes, yes, hands going up. Are you glad to be back? Yes, for those of you that are out of town, I see the nods, I see the, uh, the perk up in the face there. You know, those kind of break times are, are fun for a season, right? But then we like, well, this isn't reality, right? This isn't life. And uh, if life was all a break, oh, uh, we would be the most miserable of men, right? Uh, but uh, there's tasks to be done, time to get back with friends, trying to get back in the groove of what needs to get accomplished. And it's good to see some of the gang coming back. What's the deadline? Isn't it by like tomorrow night when the clock strikes midnight or something, you have to be in? Isn't it something like that? At least for on-campus folks. Uh, I think they have to be back in and then you start that little week of online, right? So uh, trust all that will go well. You get a good start uh, for those of you that are students. And um, let's have a good start in the word tonight uh, together. So it uh, wouldn't be surprising if I said there's a little bit of strife in our country right now. That wouldn't be a surprising statement. Clay alluded to it on uh, last Thursday, and Pastor Farrell uh, certainly addressed it in the message on uh, Sunday, talking about God's sovereignty and just comforting our hearts and just a lot of the anxiety and stress and strife and um, uncertainty that's in our country right now. And depending on how plugged you in, are in, in social media or other things or how much you talk about it or how much you care about things, uh, there'll be different levels of response that you have to that. But I must say, as a whole, uh, I, I, maybe you, along with me, sees the, the, the state of depravity in our culture that isn't looking to God first and foremost for these answers, right? In fact, much of what we struggle and, and just uh, the, the turmoil that's just swirling into what seems to be a deeper and deeper vortex is all because of a re- rebellion and a, and a pushing away of what God has to say and who he is. And that, it, it brings lament, it just brings, uh, you know, uh, uncertainty in my own heart and just a, uh, a sense of uh, just dissatisfaction and really sorrow over what I see going on. And perhaps you felt some of that as well. Invariably, when I've seen that before, though, or experienced those feelings, as I am now, at some point, I stop and pause from the anger and the 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 stress and the anxiety over what I'm seeing, and I start turning it over towards me. I start to put the spotlight on my own heart, just reminding myself, hey, Rich, you're a sinner too. (laughs) You know, these very things that are besetting in our culture, in our society, in a Genesis 3 world that's broken, are the very things in this flesh that I struggle with. And I start looking at myself and say, wow, I start really start looking at the Lord and say, Lord, thank you for saving me. But who will deliver me from these, these sins, these very struggles that I have with myself? The war's not all out there. A lot of the war's right in here, in Rich Brown's life. And it would be a big, huge mistake for me to look at all out there and just lose sight of this problem, these issues, this war, this battle that's going right on in my own heart. So I turn the spotlight back over, and it's like, Lord, what do you have to say about me? 
And this is what we looked, out, looked at last week. God has not just left us in our sin and on our own to be destroyed and to perish and to be eternally separated from him. He's given us all the answers we need to take care of this wickedness, this sin problem that is in every one of our hearts. We're born with this, right? And even as believers, yes, we have a new position in Christ and we're fully forgiven and the slate is, is, is completely clean and our sins have been taken away as far as the east is from the west. Glory, it's wonderful. But that battle still rages on here and there's discouragement, isn't there? Some of you are coming back from winter break and it's like, oh man, that same sin problem I had the last time I was with mom and dad, with the family, with old friends, boy, they cropped up again. Some of the same arguments, some of the same difficulties, some of the same stresses. For some of you, it's just good to be back out of the house again because of a lot of difficulties and strife at home. And then you start looking at it and say, well, that's not just my mom and dad's problem. That's my problem, too. These are things I have to deal with. Does God have anything to say about what I'm supposed to do? Am I just left here in my sin? And he does. And that's why we're looking at the topic of repentance. It's a biblical topic. It's an important topic. It's how we restore relationship with God. Biblical repentance, okay? And if we could go into some of the verses, or a verse we looked at last week. What a a, a promising verse here that brings so much encouragement. It's really a, a declaration of salvation from the Old Testament that Isaiah the prophet tells us. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Isn't that profound in and of itself? That as a sinner, you can even have the opportunity to seek the Lord. Why? Because he can be found. Seek him. Go pursue him. Look after him. Call upon him while he is near. We can can have communication with him. He speaks to us from the Bible, but we can speak back to him as we seek him, and he'll hear us. What does it say? Let the wicked forsake his ways. Part of repentance, forsaking. And let the unrighteous man... Uh, his thoughts, forsaking those. Let him return to the Lord. The biblical idea of repentance is turning to the Lord, turning from sin and turning to the Lord. Why? That he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. This idea of repentance is not this kind of thing where I'm just punishing myself and I have to walk on my knees to church and I have to somehow inflict pain on myself. No, no, no. It is a painful process to turn from sin, to forsake self, to deny yourself, to not let sin reign in your mortal body. But look at the back end, that the Lord may have compassion and he will abundantly pardon that's where freedom is. You know, when we buy the lie of sin, and we're, you know, as Clay has taught us before, fundamentally it's deceit. We believe the lie when we sin. Like there's more freedom there. And then we start getting ourselves shackled in the, in the, in the, in the, in the chains of sin in our lives. And, and we, start, we start eating the, the, the pods with the pigs in the, in, in, the, in, the, in the pig pen, in the hog pen, and we start realizing, what am I doing? Why am I even here? This isn't the exciting Christian life. This isn't what sin had, had promised me. And all along, God is saying, return to me. Repent. Turn. Repent. He has compassion. 
and he will abundantly pardon. Repentance, okay? Repentance is what we're talking about. So when we talk about repentance, we went over this last week, some review, um, a definition here, which I thought Wayne Grudem did a nice job just summarizing it here. Biblical repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience. Heartfelt sorrow. I've offended God. I've hurt the God I love. The very thing I'm trying to cling to are the very things that Christ died for. And it's this, it's this renewed understanding of a sorrow, a godly sorrow. We'll talk about that in a little bit. It's a growing hatred of it, renouncing. It's putting up a stop sign. This, this is not to define me. And not only do I say no to it, but I reject it. And then there's this renewed commitment, this sincere commitment. This, this is all work of the heart here, right, to forsake it and this commitment to now walk in obedience. It's a turning in the other direction. And if you remember, repentance starts at salvation, right? Conversion. When someone first becomes a Christian, what do they do? They repent and have faith and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent and believe. Conversion is repentance and faith, but they're really the same thing. They're, they're involved in the same thing. It's, it's a repentant faith. I turn from my sin and its wickedness, and I turn the other direction towards Christ, putting my faith in him. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, yes, but I believe on him, and I know my need for him because of my desperate situation in my sin. You see, it's that turning. Conversion is that coin that has two sides. It's a turning from my sin, and it's putting faith in the gospel, the good news of Jesus, correct? But that repentance continues in the Christian life. We have to continue to turn from our sin because we still live in this mortal body. Yes, sin is taken care of, but the pathway to God's compassion and his forgiveness and his working in our life to spiritual growth has to go through repentance. It has to go through that gate. You, you sacrifice, you, you, you repel the working of God in your life to be what he wants you to be if you don't go through the path of forgiveness. Why? Because we're sinners and sin separates us from fellowship with God. So we need to be repenting. And Charles Spurgeon, who's great with words, if you remember last week, repentance is a discovery of the evil of sin, a mourning that we have committed it, a resolution to forsake it. It is, in fact, a change of mind of a very deep and practical character which makes the man love what he once hated and hate what once he loved, right? You're turning it on his face. You're turning it around. The very thing I thought I loved, I now hate. And that's sin, and I turn from it, and I reject it in the proper course of repentance. So repentance is first and foremost a change of mind. It comes from the heart, but invariably it bears fruit. Repentance in and of itself is not an action other than what's going on in the heart. The fruits and the actions that come in one's life that are good and godly are fruits of repentance. They come from repentance. It's the natural outflow of a changed heart. Remember, what proceeds from the mouth comes from the heart. When God changes the heart, it shows up on the outside, right? So uh, you look at a verse like this right here that... Um, Paul was stating 
to King Agrippa and um, making his defense. And he says, therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. And he was declaring, he's giving a testimony, what God was doing and why he was doing what he was doing. He says, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and through all, all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles. What was he telling them? That they should repent and turn to God. That's conversion, right? I've repented from my sin. I've turned to faith in God. And then what? And then performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. In other words, you're, you're, you're just a natural outflow is going to be an obedient life, a changed life, a life of less sin and more Christ, a life of less me and more obedience. It's a natural outflow of repentance, that, that change of heart. So again, if you want to see changes in your life, if you've made some commitments this year, Lord, I want to grow for this year. I want 2021 to be, you know, I think a lot of us are ready to put 2020 behind, right? And it is now. It's in the dust, okay? Rear view mirror. Uh, but from a spiritual standpoint, Lord, what do you want to do in my life this year? I want to be more like Christ. I want to follow him in ways I never have before. I want to, I want to be, it'll all be less about me and more about him. If you want that to become reality, you have to be serious about repentance. Because it is our arch enemy, Satan, and it is our big battle with sin that will keep you from fulfilling that unless you use God's means, which includes repentance. So uh, today what we're going to look at are evidences of genuine repentance. So we try to do a little overview just now of what we covered last week. But some of the things you might be asking yourselves is, how do I know if my repentance is genuine or not? Should I be concerned about that? Does God just want my sincerity? Does he just want me to try my best? What does God have to say about the genuineness of my repentance? Um, I uh, travel, I used to travel frequently for, for work around the world. I think that'll probably happen again sometime when that vaccine gets out. But I've been, you know, I just, I'll go to Europe and I'll go to Asia and different things in the, in the line of work that I'm in. And uh, invariably, when you go to other cultures and other lands, you got to do a little shopping, right? So I do a little bit of that. I'm not the big shopper kind of guy. I'm usually like the hardware store kind of guy and pick up my hammer and nails and I'm, I'm pretty satisfied. But, you know, you go to these markets and things and you can find some pretty interesting stuff uh, out there. I've been to some of those uh, meat markets and fish markets and I just love seeing these heads of animals sitting there <laughs> like this some great trophy and all this meat out there, you know, all day. And it's like, wow, people actually eat this. This thing's been sitting here for like, ooh. And uh, it's just intriguing to me. Um, but some of the merchandise you see uh, isn't all authentic. Um, now, that lamb that's beheaded off on the side there, that's a real lamb. But uh, when I look at uh, some of the merchandise, like a handbag or certain clothing, or this watch they say is a Rolex. Wow, $15.99 for a Rolex. Something's not quite right about this here, okay? Um, the handbags in particular can be a little interesting. Uh, those of you of that persuasion, I see some of you with bags out here. Um, you know, you get to these uh, big name brands, which I'm kind of, I'll get out of my league here pretty quickly, but Gucci, I think, is one of them and Burberry, and if I was asked some of, some of the other guys, you could probably give them many more. They usually come from like Paris, right? And um, it's interesting, in these low-rate type markets, all these name brands are there. It's like, wow, this is really awesome. 
And uh, when you start looking at the pricing, it's like, well, this doesn't quite sound right. Is this really the real thing? You know, this North Face jacket for, you know, $3 when at Dick's Sporting Goods, it's uh, $84.99. Uh, something's not, you know, something's not quite adding up. How do I know it's not a fake? How do I, other than the price, right? Uh, so you get one of these handbags and you, you open it up with a zipper and the zipper comes off. It's like, oh, well, that's probably a fake, right? <laughs> or this leather uh, for a Gucci, it seems, wow, this feels a little like plastic. Uh, or you kind of look inside and you look at that lining and, you know, it's kind of torn on the side or the threading's all off and it's like, hmm, telltale signs for one who wouldn't know any better uh, that there's probably a fake here. It's not authentic. I made the mistake last night of Googling handbags, and now my, my, my Google's filled with advertising. You know how that goes. All these different handbag, handbag companies are. But I looked at the pricing on some of those, and it's like, wow, $2,500 for this little blue alligator purse. And it's like, holy moly. And that was one of the lower-end ones, okay? It gets much higher than that. And it's like, okay, there's definitely a difference between a fake and the real thing. And if you want the real thing, you have to know what to look for. The Bible is clear on what to look for as far as identifying genuine repentance. Okay, now it's going to be important to be able to identify this properly. Okay, and we'll look at some, some various passages here that kind of get us wound, uh, wound up here and off the runway to look at um, this important topic. So, Let's start by turning over to the book of 2 Corinthians. Okay, go to your Bibles and open up to the book of 2 Corinthians. I'll show some verses up on the screen. Uh, other ones, uh, it'd just be good to have it open or on your phone if you have that available. If you don't, kind of peek over and see someone else next to you there and, and share together and see what's there. But this, this first passage I, I have up here, and we'll be camping out again a lot in 2 Corinthians tonight. Well, let's start here with 2 Corinthians 7, 9 and 10. And what I want you to pay attention to are the words grief and how they're used here, all right? Paul says this, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. Verse 10, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Now, I didn't count how many times grieve and grief comes up there, but quite a bit in just two verses, right? It's an important word that uh, Paul is using here, and he's trying to get something across to us. Here's the first thing I want us to get from this. A true and authentic repentance is always precipitated by a godly grief. That's where it starts. It's always there. It's a prerequisite, let's say. Godly grief. In other words, there is a sorrow that God wants you to experience for your sin. But it needs to be the right kind of sorrow. This is what we're talking about here. It's a mourning over your sin. You know, David put it well in Psalm 51, 17. And if you've read the Psalm, well, you see the heart of David when he sinned against God. And what does he say? The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, 
A broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Psalm 51, 17. What's David saying? You know, sacrifices were a requirement in the Old Testament, right? This is how you, 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 you got your temporary atonement, your temporary covering for your sin. These were required by the law. But here he's saying, you know, the sacrifices that God is pleased with are not just going through the motions and doing what you're supposed to do. He's saying, wait, it starts from the heart. And the heart that generates proper obedience needs to be broken before God. We go to God and sacrifices the Old Testament saints because they had sinned against God. But what did he want? He wanted their hearts. He didn't want just dead animals. He didn't want just going to the temple. He didn't want just all the perfunctory things before the priest. He wanted their hearts. God wants your heart. There is a godly sorrow that God wants from you, a brokenness over your sin. John Piper says it well along this topic of godly grief. Godly grief throws us to the foot of the cross. The dying Christ slays the dragon of guilt and frees us to turn boldly away from sin, rebuke the defeated devil, and walk joyfully with God in the narrow path of righteousness that leads to life. A godly grief over our sin turns the believer back to God. It has to. That's where it has to lead. If it's godly, that's where it will lead. That's the only place where there can be relief. It's the only place where there can be forgiveness. It's the only place where there's good news and cleansing and restoration that will set me in the right direction that leads to righteousness and life. It has to go through that path. We must turn to God. I'm a parent, along with Christy, wherever she's at here. We have three children, six grandchildren. Uh, life is good. They were all here over Christmas, and we are still in recovery mode. We're, <laughs> we're figuring that out, and whoa, we loved every minute of it. Uh, this relationship God wants us to have with him, like you see here what John Piper says, where this godly grief brings us back to him. It, it reminds me of my own relationship with my children. You know, there's those years where, especially those teenage years, where things don't always go as smooth as you want. You know, when someone's a little tykester, you can kind of like pretty much guide them and tell them what to do, and, and you can pretty much control things. There's a point where you can't. And a child starts making the decisions on their own. And you go through that as a young single with your parents. And, um, and I certainly uh, went through that with our children. We were happy to get through the teenage years and, and made, made it through it in one piece. But I have to say, when there were times when there was a lot of dissension or maybe uh, some ill-advised disobedience from my children, um, it hurt me. Parents get hurt by their children when there's a a clear and, 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 and concise disobedience and a rebellion against what they had to say. Uh, in fact, sometimes things are done to even hurt the heart of a parent, and it, it, it's very hurtful. But I'll tell you what, in all those hurts, probably my most wonderful times is when my child would come back and say, I'm sorry, I screwed up. I need your forgiveness. You know, my, some of our children are... What's our oldest? 32 years old now. 
I love it when my children, even in a text, will come back and say, I'm sorry, Dad. I shouldn't have said something the way I did. Um, uh, I know our relationship hasn't been right because of that. And it's a return back to restoration of fellowship. There was no other way for that to be restored but to him to come back and say, "Ah, I'm sorry, forgive me. And what we're seeing here in repentance is this grief that draws us back to the Savior, the only place where there's forgiveness, restoration, where I can be made clean again and free, free from the the sin that wants to keep me from doing what God wants me to do and the blessings that are involved there. Now, this grief, this sorrow, is differentiated in those verses we just read. It's differentiated from a worldly sorrow, a worldly grief. This is really important. Not all grief, okay, not all uh, emotional response as a result of our sin is a godly response to sin. Much of it is ungodly. It's a worldly sorrow. And Paul gave us what he gave us there in 2 Corinthians 7 so we could help, help us understand that difference. An emotional response alone to sin does not prove that your repentance is authentic. Okay? We talked a little bit about Judas. Judas, one of the apostles that betrayed, betrayed Christ, the son of perdition. Think about his life. Right at the end, he uh, sells off Christ for 30 pieces of silver, right? He leads though his enemies to him, all part of God's plan, not outside God's plan, but certainly sinful Judas betrayed Christ. And think about it. He felt remorse. After his remorse, he returned the 30 pieces of silver. And then he confessed. He said this, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Now think about that. He felt remorse. He returned what he had taken, and he made a confession. I mean, that seems like repentance, doesn't it? I mean, that just seems like textbook. And yet we know the end of the story, right? He was so grieved over what he had committed, he killed himself. And when we go into the underlying situation of what's going on here, it was a worldly grief. Think about Judas. He has spent three years under the ministry of Christ. And what did he see? What did he hear? How Jesus came to save sinners, like Judas, right? He saw in front of his eyes the miracles, the, 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 the affirmations, uh, authentications of who Jesus was, the Son of God. He saw the Son of God, not just as a man, but as God and in everything he performed and, the, and, and, and that he never sinned. And what did he do? He was always with those, the, the riffraff of society, right? the prostitutes, the drunkards, the tax collectors, all the, the rejected people of society. What did he do? He would restore them. He would see, Judas would see people forgiven. He would see people going to God, broken over their sin. But rather than bringing this shame and guilt and grief to the Savior, Judas, he, he sought to, to atone for his own sins. Okay. In other words, Judas's sorrow was self-centered. It was man-centered. It was a man-centered solution to his sin. He, by committing suicide and the grief he, he felt, he didn't turn to the Savior. It was very self-centered, his, his response. 
It was a grief from the painful circumstances that was not focused on God's solution. Worldly sorrow is fundamentally a grief from painful uh, consequences of sin, but not focused on God. You contrast that to Peter, and it's much different, right? The very same day, Peter betrays the Lord three times, just as the Lord said he would, and what did he do? He wept bitterly, right? And almost what we would consider the unforgivable sin. What happens that resurrection day a few days later? I mean, Peter is so excited. He's so ecstatic to see the Savior. Could this really be happening? And the response was completely different from Judas's, right? He was ecstatic over the resurrection. He was restored to ministry by the Lord. He followed Christ and served him to his death, even what tradition says, crucified upside down on a, on a cross. He, he truly had a godly grief. Can you, re- can you relate to the same sense of sorrow yourself when we commit a sin against the Savior that we, we love? where we betray the love of Christ and we take advantage of his patience to us and his forbearance and his kindness. We snub his mercy. So to look at genuine repentance, we recognize it has to be predicated on a godly sorrow. So you might be saying, okay, I sense a sorrow. I know I sin. I feel bad about it. But how do I know if I truly repented? How do I know it's authentic or not? So what we're going to look at here as we go along is we're going to look at eight evidences that reveal genuine repentance. These are the evidences of a changed heart that come through a godly grief. How can I test my grief? How can I test my sorrow? Yeah, I feel bad over what's going on, but but is it the real deal? And God is so good. He gives us uh, his word to be able to test that, to test the authenticity of it, to verify it, to look at it more closely. So we're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians 7, 10 through 11, but to get off this runway a little bit more, we want to, um, ooh, it's kind of bouncing around a little bit. Sorry about that. Um, Actually, before we even get to that verse, I want to give you a little background. We're parachuting into 2 Corinthians here. And before we get to these evidences, you know, what we're going to look at here are Corinthians repenting of their sin that had a godly grief. What were they repenting over? If you're there still in 2 Corinthians, look at uh, the verses right before what we're going to look at here in 2 Corinthians 7, 10, and 11. Look at uh, 2 Corinthians 7, 5 through 8. And let's read these verses briefly and just think, okay, what were these signs? What were these evidences of repentance? What was the sin they committed that uh, Paul was addressing in 2 Corinthians? Let's try to get a little flavor of that. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 5. For even when we came into Macedonia, Paul speaking, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he has comforted uh, by you as he told us of your longing, your mourning, and your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. So you start seeing this grief again. 
Look back there at verse 5 again in 2 Corinthians 7. Paul was downcast. You see, there's actually the start of verse 6. He was distraught over something. What was it? What was that that was going on? Well, if you read the, the letter, which I did several times this week to get as good of understanding as I could, uh, the Corinthian church, which we know well in 1 Corinthians, they had a church, a lot of struggles, a lot of people that were coming out of pagan lifestyle and sin. Well, at this time in their church history, the time of 2 Corinthians, this letter, they had permitted false teachers to come into their fellowship and lead them astray. These, these teachers were promoting themselves. They were more about self and their personal glory than the glory of God. And Paul was not there. He was not present in Corinth during this time. He sends Timothy over there as part of this situation. But it's, it's, it's just, it's got Paul just significantly concerned. He's downcast. He's concerned. He's, he's, he's worried for them. He's mourning over them and what's going on and how they're turning away from the things that he had clearly taught them and they're quickly going to these false teachings. It's clear from 2 Corinthians that one of the church members was a, actually a leader in the mutiny against Paul. He's like the ringleader. Uh, just building up these false teachers and, and, and pushing down Paul and his, um, uh, you know, uh, encouraging disloyalty to him and um, minimizing the authority of his ministry and who Paul was and, and who God made Paul to be for this church. So uh, this, this, this ringleader was, was encouraging others to side with the false teachers. And the church did not biblically address these false teachers, the rebellion, uh, this individual who was leading this uh, effort against Paul. And you can see so clearly throughout the letter, it just caused Paul immense pain, immense hurt, uh, what he was going through here. It was a broken relationship that caused pain. It, just, it, it reminds me of how sin that breaks relationships causes pain. You felt that before, right? Words that weren't said right or things that were done or things that should have been done that weren't. and um, Real pain. We experience real pain when we're sinned against or when we sin against others. And here Paul, he just shows that real, his raw emotions, he was deeply hurt. So what did he do? You see there he's um, referring to a letter in verse 8, right? And he sounds a little weird about it. Look at it. He says, even if I made you grieve with my letter, well, I do not regret it. Oh, though I did regret it. Uh, what's he talking about here? Well, here's another letter we don't have a copy of. Uh, there were several letters sent to, to Corinth. We have 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. This is a letter that God chose not to inscripturate, to put in Scripture. But it was a letter where you could say Paul put the hammer down. He was addressing the sin, and he was harsh. And apparently he needed to be to wake up these believers. But in doing this so harshly, he thought he might lose them. You ever feel like that way when you, you address sin in another person's life and you know you have to be truthful and you know you have to be out there and you know you can't mince words and you know that faithful are the wounds of a friend but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy and sometimes it just may not work out the way you want, at least not when you want it to. In fact, sometimes you see more trouble than there is the peace you were looking for. And Paul felt that. He wasn't there. He couldn't text them. He couldn't Instagram with them. He couldn't you know, get on Twitter 
I mean, this was just a letter. He launched it out and just trusted God with it. So he regretted it. Oh, is it going to turn them away? But he didn't regret it. Why? Because it led to a godly grief. It resulted in a godly grief that led to repentance. Okay? It was an intervention of sorts, this letter. It was serious enough to warrant this serious letter. So here's Paul. He sends the letter. Not sure what's going to happen. And now he's like, okay, what's going to happen? Are these Corinthians going to turn? Are they going to change? Are they going to do the right thing? You know, Paul could try to find comfort in some meaningless positivity. Oh, it'll all work out, you know, and just kind of convince yourself in some, you know, positive thinking kind of thing, which is so prevalent in our culture, but so insidiously evil. He trusted in God here. We looked to him, but how would he know if they turned in the right way? What should we look for as evidences that they've turned the corner from these sins to realize that it is God that did it hard, that it wasn't just going to be a worldly grief, but a godly grief where they got things right with God and ultimately with Paul as well, who they sinned against. What are those evidences? Okay, And uh, that's what we're going to look at. Okay, So again, our title for tonight, uh, Eight Evidences That Reveal Genuine Repentance. And these are going to come from 2 Corinthians 7, verses 10 through 11. So let's read that. He goes on. For godly grief, okay, we read this verse already, produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Verse 11. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced. So godly grief is producing something. First, there's this earnestness, okay? Um, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, that's what he says here, you have proved yourself innocent in this matter. Paul got the answer he needed through Titus. The Corinthian believers had repented from a godly grief. And what were the evidences of that? So let's see what these eight evidences are as we as we go here. And as we look at this, it was interesting, uh, uh, Pastor Farrell, he's called this before the uh, x-ray of the heart. The x-ray of the heart. Have you ever x-rayed? I don't know if you, well, you've probably had something x-rayed before. I do a little x-raying uh, at work. Uh, I'm an engineer. I try to be. And, uh, you know, so I have sometimes I work many hours on an x-ray machine, looking beneath uh, electronic components and seeing what I can't see with the naked eye. But the x-ray does not lie, and I look through it, and I see problems, right? And if, I, if you know what you're looking for, you know what to detect to see what the problem really is. Here we have an x-ray of the heart in 2 Corinthians 7, 10, and 11 that give us these evidences. So let's look. What does um, Paul have to say about these uh, evidences? The first one's this. Genuine repentance has no regrets. Genuine repentance has no regrets. Look at verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Without regret. Genuine repentance. So what are we talking about here? Salvation. This isn't conversion, right? This is a restored relationship with God. A restoration from the sin that they had been deceived with and they're no longer alienated from God from. 
These are no regrets over the circumstances and the process and the pain that they had experienced that brought about their repentance. They could literally look through the rearview mirror and recall what it took for them to see their sin rightly, to develop a heart that renounced the sin and rather than embrace it, in developing that heartfelt mindset that says, um, I'm going to turn my heart in the opposite direction. They looked back and said it was all worth it because I have joy and gladness and restoration with God again. And, and they looked to do the same with the Apostle Paul. Do you think the prodigal son had any regrets when he turned from his sin back to the hands of the father who welcomed him with open arms? I mean, if you think about that story, it's just, I think we can all resonate with that, with that right? These times we've gone off our own way, thinking there was something so much better. And maybe, maybe along the way, many times I believe the prodigal son felt this, that what he did was wrong, but he was all for it anyway, and he lived in riotous living and, uh, you know, just spent away his father's inheritance. But when God got a hold of his heart and he saw the seriousness of his sin and the consequences God used as well that he went through, he returned to the father and the father looked afar off and what? Just was, was amazed. And the love of the father came, came out. And the, the embrace of the father for a son who had returned home after being gone so long. You think there was any regrets? the prodigal son. Why? Be- there wasn't any because he, he, he had no regrets because it was a genuine repentance. He wasn't missing that old life anymore. He was back where he needed to be. He returned to the Lord. He turned to the Lord, turning from his sin and turning back to the Lord. You know, there's a, it's, we're, we're sinners, aren't we? I, 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 I'm talking I'm looking at myself right now, and uh, I, I, I think of how many times I fail the Lord. I, I, just to give you an example, one of the ways I do that at times, it just came out in my mind, in my heart when I was studying this, was sometimes an unkind word or something I'll say improperly to my, my wife, Christy. You know, I could look at frustration from the day, I could look at fatigue, I could look at circumstances that made me do it, but ultimately I, I sin against my wife when I say something unkind or inappropriate or some, something that violates the covenant or the commitment that I've made to my wife. And, you know, on, during that time I do something like that. You know, this has happened before. Uh, and Christy knows what to do. She, she waits on me. You know, I'll be off in my corner you know, sucking my thumb or whatever, or just outside cooling off, whatever I'm doing, right? And uh, she, she knows, she's kind of, she's a very good wife. She, and she knows Rich Brown. So she waits patiently for what? For me to return and say I'm sorry and ask for forgiveness. Because you know when I'm off steaming, I'm like, this is no fun. A broken relationship, there's hurt in my heart. I know I've caused it in hers. And until I get that right with her, there's this, there's, there's this separation. There's a relationship that's broken. It's not right. Every time I've gone back to my wife in a true heart of repentance, I've never regretted it. Why would I? I've restored a relationship. The hurts that were there before and what I committed, 
My wife has received my forgiveness and accepted that. There's no regrets. I don't look back and say, why? I wish that hadn't occurred, or I wish I could just be back in that old sin, sucking my thumb in that corner and just, you know, just all sulking over what I want or what I didn't get or what I didn't get what I wanted it. It's just like, it's silly. When there's true repentance and understanding of our sin, there's no regrets. A, a genuine repentance has that. There's no, you're not missing out on that sin. So here's the challenge. If an exposure of sin in your life has left a bad taste in your mouth, you, you need to look back and find a place where you can thank God for the work he did in exposing that sin, of convicting you of it, or using a friend, or using a pastor, or using the teaching of the word to say, hey, wait a second, you should not be going this way. You need to turn, repent, and find the salvation of the Lord. Find the forgiveness of the Lord. You need to get things right with God. Find a place for thankfulness for whomever he uses, wherever he uses it, however he uses it, to bring about the awareness and the seriousness of your need and the opportunity you have to repent. So that's the first evidence. It's a, um, a genuine repentance that has no regrets. So the second evidence we're going to look out here is a genuine repentance creates an earnestness. An earnestness. Okay, go look again there at your Bibles in verse 11. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. Again, godly grief has rep- produced an evidence of repentance. It first had no regrets, as we saw, and now we see here it creates an eagerness. It creates an eagerness. This earnestness is what we're talking about. Earnestness means an eagerness. The idea here is someone who has an eagerness to accomplish something with enthusiasm, okay? We are talking about an urgency to put that sin or those sins to death. And this would be exemplified by a passion of righting the wrong, to make right the wrong. So for the Corinthian believers here who had uh, sinned against Paul, they were now eager to restore their broken relationship with Paul. This... uh, Eagerness is related to a righteous activity to replace or what's a fitting replacement of my unrighteous sin. So there's this passion to forsake sin and instead pursue the glory of God. It's an attitude of the heart, but it will manifest itself eventually in action. So let's let's take some examples here. If I have repented from laziness at work. In other words, if you're lazy, you're not putting a, a good day of work, you're, you're stealing from your employer, right, essentially. And if you're convicted over that, an earnestness would be, I now have a earnest desire to pursue a godly work ethic. That's my desire. I recognize the sin of my laziness and now a fitting replacement. This desire I have, this earnestness, the eagerness to right that wrong is to now find ways to be a better worker for my employer. How can we say there's repentance? Oh, I'm sorry for my sin of laziness, but there's no desire to replace it with a good work ethic. Repentance is that replacement process, right? It's that attitude that wants to to get that right. If I've repented of bitterness towards someone who wronged me, 
I now eagerly desire to forgive that wrongdoer. That's my desire. It's my earnest desire. If I've repented from anxiety in difficult circumstances, I earnestly now, in repentance, pursue a trust in God's sovereignty and his promised care. If I've repented from prayerlessness in my life, well, then I earnestly desire to set aside time each day for God's word and prayer, right? If I've repented from lustful thinking, then I eagerly pursue things that will fill my mind with good things and to to avoid those places that tempt me to those lustful thoughts. When I uh, came to know Christ in college, I was your age when I came to know the Lord, I had repented from several life-dominating sins in my life. And some of my sins might not seem so big to you, what I'll share with you now, but uh, one was my choices of music. As an unbeliever, it was all about rock music. Um, And my mind and my life were controlled by the things that I was investing in. And it was very obvious as I was repenting and turning to the Lord in my sin and asking Christ to save me that there were things in my life that weren't right. And that just sticks out to me as one of those things I specifically gave over to God. God, I have to change the things that are going in here. They're turning me away from you, and I don't want to look at you. And I, it's, it's encouraging me to, to think about things and to do things that are dishonoring to you. And I, I don't want to do those anymore. I'm giving myself to you. So... What was my earnest desire? It was to start filling my mind and my life and my, my, my ears with good things. And I started, for the first time, listening to Christian music. I mean, it just wasn't, I didn't even know it was out there. <laughs> and and I, I started looking at, listening to all the Christian artists at the time, and I just couldn't get enough. There's just, in my newfound love for God, now there's things I could actually express to him in ways I hadn't thought of before as I listened to edifying things that are filling my heart and mind that I needed so desperately. The other thing I forsook in my, my life was my love for sports at that time. I was a track and cross-country runner, and that was my life. It was all about competition. It was all about running. You know, long-distance runner is about all you do. You see some of those people on the road out there? That was me. Uh, every waking moment, you're out on the road, you're out on the road, you're out on the road, and you're always traveling the, tra- the track team, the cross-country team. It was my life. It was my idol. What's sinful about sports? Nothing inherently sinful about sports. What is, what is inherently insidious about an idol? An idol is not just something that you, know, you can see clearly up on a wall with incense and bowing down. No, uh, oftentimes an idol is a good thing that you've made your God, right? And this was a good thing I made my God. It was my life, and it got between me and God. It prevented me from pursuing God. It was, it was all about me and not about him, and I, I had to turn. I had to, I had to give it up. What did I fill the void with? What did, I, what did I do? My earnest desire was to follow Christ, and I knew the direction I was going, and my love for this was much more for than for him. And man, I turned it around, and I just like, I started pursuing Bible studies on campus, and I, I started going to church regularly, and I started making new friends. I started memorizing scripture. I started filling my life with stuff that I didn't have a desire for before, but God in his grace just gave me fitting replacements. But it started with a desire. I didn't, I didn't want to go that way anymore. So I filled it with things that were good and profitable and were a help to me.
True repentance is marked by an earnest desire to right the wrong. I'm not truly repentant if I'm apathetic about a desire to change. Okay? If there's this indifference and change is just seen as optional or just whenever I can get to it, you're not there yet. Don't fool yourself. We have to desire change God's way, okay? And that's an evidence of genuine repentance. It's an earnestness. So eight evidences that reveal a genuine repentance. Let's look at number three. Genuine repentance creates an eagerness to clear your name an eagerness to clear your name. So you look at verse 11. But also what eagerness to clear yourselves. You may see in your uh, version of the scriptures, a vindication of yourselves. Remember the Corinthians here. They sided with the false teachers. They rebelled against Paul's authority as an apostle. And because of their past association with these sins, they now had this desire to renounce them. This was wrong. They wanted to turn away with an eagerness to restore Paul's trust. Okay? What we're seeing here in this eagerness to clear your name is, is essentially a desire to make your repentance known. Paul, we're putting ourselves on notice that what we did against you was wrong. It was sinful. It was it was completely out of line. It was unacceptable to God, and we hurt you deeply, right? And what the desire here in clearing your name is the desire to make that repentance known. I no longer associate with that anymore. Not that sin. That no longer defines me. And by the grace of God, I've turned from this sin. I'm forgiven. And now I want others to know that I'm resolved to live in it different direction. This isn't about saving face. It's not trying to cover up sin. It's not trying to justify what you had done. Instead, it's sparing no effort to ensure others understand that you are no longer a partner with this sin. That your repentance is real. This isn't something that can be forced, can it? It's it's a natural outflow of a godly grief and a desire to get things right. In the recent past, I had a sin I was working on in my life called discontentment. We talked about the six grandkids that were here. They live in different states. And for a grandfather, and I can probably speak for Christy as a grandmother, we call her Amma. That's the Indian name for grandmother. Uh, There are those days I just want to hold my my little grandchildren. Probably the thing I enjoy the most... um, when they're around is is being in a church with them, having them on my lap and just listening to the word together or just mentoring them in biblical things. And I I miss that. In fact, I I can look at it at others uh, in our fellowship around town and they're around their grandkids and I feel envious. They have something I want desperately. And I see it before my eyes and I'll feel this envy, this jealousy. And there was a period of time where I was just discontented. I was... um, I was worrisome over it. I was dissatisfied. It was just Paul over my life that just life's not right because I don't have what I would really like to have. I was discontented. And I started recognizing this, this isn't right. This isn't a right reaction. Something's wrong, Rich. You don't have the joy of the Lord. 
I went to the scriptures. I studied discontentment. I went to Philippians. I, I saw where Paul learned contentment from a Roman prison. And I thought, oh, boy, I'm just not, I'm not with my grandkids. And here's Paul in a Roman prison <laughs> learning contentment. It's like, well, I felt like this fool. Why? So it was all about me. It wasn't about the Lord. And I, through that process of understanding what God had to say, I, I grieved over my sin. This isn't right. I'm questioning your sovereignty and your control here, Lord, your providence and, and what you've allowed to happen and all the beautiful blessings you've given in my, my life. And just because I have a, don't have it just the way I want it, there's no reason for me to shake my fist and say, why can't it be different? It was a, a sinful response to some unpleasant circumstances, but no excuse for my sin. So I, in, in part of the process of going through that, I made my repentance known. I taught a lesson on it in Boundless. And I taught the Boundless group at that time, hey, this is what I struggled with. And I no longer associate with that discontentment. I'm finding contentment in Christ and the very circumstances he's brought me in and a closeness I have with the Savior now, and I've learned to be satisfied with that. Am I tempted in that area at times? Oh, yes. <laughs> but I go back and I repent again and I turn again. And I find forgiveness again and I find acceptance from the Father. But what was it? It's an eagerness to clear your name, okay? I get so encouraged listening to many of you, whether it's after Boundless or at a lunchtime after uh, uh, church, we're talking together in a church lobby or after a service, and you, you, just, you start sharing how the words working in your heart or, or, or some challenges you have that with God's help you're overcoming. What are you doing? You're making it known. This is what God's doing in my life. This is how I'm changing. This is what I've turned from. Yeah, I used to do this, but God set me in a different direction. It's making it known. That's, it's a sign of repentance. This isn't me anymore, and this is where I'm going. It takes a lot of humility, doesn't it? God made a change in my life, and this is where I, sh- I shouldn't have been there in the first place. I turned on God, but now I'm turning back to him. And that's not part of me anymore. That no longer defines me. I like how this one writer put it. You do everything you can to make sure your repentance is as public as your sin was. Did you hear that? This eagerness to clear your name. You do everything you can to make sure your repentance is as public as your sin was. So what are we looking at here? You're not repentant if you're all about concealing your sin, saving face, making excuses, blame shifting, rationalizing. You're not there. That's not genuine repentance. You must get back to a godly grief, right? And that godly grief, I've offended a holy God, and I go to him, and I, I, I seek his face, and I see this insidiousness and the sinfulness and, the, and, and what I've committed against a God that loved me so much and who can't tolerate sin, and I, I develop a grief over that that leads to a proper response. It's a work of God's grace that we must pursue. Okay. Let's look at number four. We better keep rolling here. Eight evidences that reveal genuine repentance. Number four, genuine repentance creates an indignation. An indignation, okay? You see there in verse 11 that word. What does this mean? A holy anger. This is a holy anger. It's a righteous indignation. It's an anger toward yourself because of the sin you've committed. 
okay? You can see this um, with Paul in Romans 7, uh, chapter 7, verse 15. And if you read that chapter, you'll you remember what, I'm ta- what Paul's talking about here. What does he say? I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. That's that indignation. I hate the sin that so easily flows out of me. I want to do the right thing, and what? I keep doing the wrong. You sense that battle that Paul has, and we can relate to that, can't we? But this godly grief produces a hatred for that sin, a dissatisfaction. It's not a, a desire to cling to it anymore, but just the opposite. I repel against it. I hate it. Don't you hate it when you sin, when you failed the Savior again, when you keep falling into that same trap or that same temptation, and you just... When you got your heart right and you know you've grieved God, you just develop this hatred for it. David said the same thing in Psalm 51.4. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. There's this understanding there of a betrayal to the Lord and there's an anger over it and that God is righteous and right to judge it, right? But it's evil, and it's, it's an understanding. I've sinned against God. Listen how this one writer put it. This one pastor is a pastor at Grace Emanuel in Jupiter, Florida. He, say, he said this, You will not turn from a sin you still love. You will not turn from a sin that you do not yet hate. That makes sense. It makes sense. There has to be a hatred for sin. It has to be a response. If I'm turning from it, I have to have this hate. And if I don't, I'm going to cling. I'm not going to let go. So it's an obvious, I think it makes sense, right? An evidence of genuine repentance must include this hatred. Not a defense of the sin, but a hatred for it. Number five, eight evidences that reveal genuine repentance. It creates a fear. It creates a fear. We'll go quickly with this. Um, what are we talking about a fear here? Uh, Clay spent a lot of good time talking about the fear of the Lord. I would ask you to go back to some of those lessons, the fear of man, the fear of God. But essentially what we're talking about here is a proper view, a proper reaction okay, to our personal sin because of our fear of God. It's a reverence for God, right? The genuine uh, repentance has a, uh, a godly fear that I have violated God's standard, that he is worthy of my worship, he's worthy of my praise, uh, he's worthy of my all, he's worthy of my obedience, and because of my sin, I've violated that covenant of sorts with him, okay? When we sin we commit the ultimate act of irreverence, right? So this godly fear is a fresh acknowledgement of who God is. The one who is high and lifted up and worthy of all our praise and worthy of our turning from sin and turning back to obedience. A godly fear, a godly understanding, a reverence after God, okay? Number six, eight evidences that reveal genuine repentance, and that is it creates a longing. 
verse 11, it talks about what longing that these Corinthians had. This is an earnest desire. This earnest desire, okay? He, Paul also talks about this longing in another part of the chapter here, 2 Corinthians 7, 7, this longing, this mourning, this zeal. So what is he talking about here? Well, sin always destroys it's, it always robs God of his glory, and it robs us of joy. And it's chiefly an offense against God. And it will always estrange us or separate us from a joyful relationship with God while we're clinging to that sin. It, it also damages relationships with our, other people. So there's this sense of separation when we sin, right? So think about this. When we what do we long for after we have this separation, this estrangement from God and for others? If I've repented from my sin, I'm longing for restoration. I'm longing for a renewed relationship again with God, who I've sinned against chiefly, and against those who I may have sinned against. I want restoration of these broken relationships. I'll never forget the many times a pastor in my past ministries I've been a part of that would call me at night after a perhaps a contentious meeting. It might have been a school board meeting or a deacon meeting, I can't remember. Uh, but maybe there was a lot of discussion that went on there. And I was went home, it was a normal meeting to me, but my pastor would often call me and he would call me to say this, you know, I want to call you Rich and I just want to say I'm sorry for how I said something tonight. He came back to me. And he called me. And that was so instructive for me. I, didn't, I wasn't offended by what he said, but he felt he offended me. And his longing was that this relationship would not be broken and that it would be not taken in any wrong way and that that relationship would continue to flourish from there on out and never be impeded by sin or any misunderstanding. That takes a lot of humility, right, to a pastor, a senior pastor to call me and say, I'm sorry for what I said to you and how I said it. Wow, well, we can learn from that. This longing. When we've, when we've sinned against someone or we've hurt someone, there's a broken relation, there's, a, there's a, a true repentance shows up in a longing to get it right. Okay? Last two, real quick here. Genuine repentance creates a zeal. A zeal. Another evidence as we x-ray the heart, this attitude of the heart, John MacArthur said that this word communicates a twofold emotion. Listen to this. This zeal speaks of loving something so much that you hate anything that hurts it. You got that? This zeal. You love something so much that you hate anything that hurts it. So what are we talking about here? We're, we're talking about we, we, this, this love for God that is so renewed and it's so passionate after I've repented from my sin that I just, I hate anything that would hurt the God I love. You could say a zeal for God's glory and honor um, is that I react with disdain to any kind of hypocritical living in my life. If I'm a hypocrite, why? Well, I, 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 I turn from that. I, I hate doing that because I love my God so much. I want to live that way. I don't want to dishonor him. I don't want to represent him wrong. If I have a zeal for my wife, Okay, it, it's a love for her such that I would hate anything that would bring her any harm. 
Or, I love my pastor so much that I would hate for any gossip or falsehoods to be spoken of them. You see that zeal? It's that zeal that my, my love is so great, I, I, I hate these things that would bring any dishonor or harm to them. So in this zeal, we're jealous for God's glory. And we're zealous for the ones we're repenting that, from that we may have sinned against. And you, you, you now have a newfound appreciation to extend blessing rather than sinful hurt in their direction, okay, a zeal. And then finally, there's a desire for justice, a desire for justice. Uh, In 2 Corinthians 2, 6 through 8, Paul comments on this ringleader in the church. He was disciplined by the church, something that should have occurred much earlier than that when he was leading this rebellion against Paul. And uh, when we talk about discipline, it's a very biblical thing. It's a godly thing. It's a Matthew 18 kind of thing, if you want to see the process and the steps for church discipline. But this person was disciplined, and Paul was concerned about him because they were really putting the hammer down. They didn't, they didn't want to be too harsh. Uh, he didn't want the church to be too harsh on him. But um, punishment, a desire to see justice done. It's an avenging of the wrong. And in our own lives, what are we saying? Well, Lord, whatever it takes, whatever I deserve, whatever justice needs to be done to make the wrong right, that's what I desire to have. When I'm repentant, I'm not as concerned about the consequences as much as getting it right with those I've hurt and those I've wronged, including God, whatever those consequences might be. So a a godly repentance creates a desire for justice. Eight evidences that reveal genuine Repentance. I hope that was instructive to you and helpful. If you don't have a heart that is in that right direction right now, I want to encourage you. Remember that first passage we looked at? Seek the Lord. Why? He's compassionate. He cares for you. He desires to forgive you. Seek the Lord. Ask him to change your heart. Repentance is a work of God. It's a work of grace. But it's something we're responsible to do. It's the avenue for, for spiritual growth. It's the avenue for restored relationship with God. There is no other way. It has to go through repentance. And if you're not feeling it, wow, put yourself to God. Read, read some Psalms like 51 and just pour out your heart to God, asking for him to change your heart. Those are the, the prayers that are according to the will of God, and he will surely answer. Let's close in prayer. Thank you, Father, for the ministry of your word. Thank you for what it's done in my heart and everything I've learned. I trust you use it in any way you see fit with anyone here, with any, any sin issues that are left unfinished in, in someone's life, that, uh, Lord, that if it's not something needed today, it will surely be something needed tomorrow. Oh, Lord, you expect us to continue to be looking to you, to find forgiveness, to turn from our sin, and just be freed again to serve you like we should, like we want to, with a joyful ambition, a pursuit of your glory, a joy in the Lord. Lord, sin will always rob us from that. Lord, make us courageous to have a godly grief, to know what this does to your heart and how it violates your goodness and grace and everything good you've done in our lives. And Lord, help us to turn. Give us a courage to do that and to turn for you, for, for, to you, Lord, where there's forgiveness and there's a restored relationship for the asking. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.